crazy storm. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're talking to Mark Palmer, travel editor of the Daily Mail, the UK's largest print daily with a digital edition that measures its readership around the world in multi-millions. Quite possibly, that makes Mark the most influential newspaper travel supremo on the planet. So Mark, however do you continue to do your job each week producing a travel section in a world where leisure travel is currently almost extinct? We are losing millions of pounds every month, but we're trying to hold the line in some respects in order to support the travel industry. So we're keeping our pages going. Traditionally, we were 10 pages every Saturday. We've gone down to eight and trying desperately to encourage people to think about travel, even if they can't actually travel, and to start to plan ahead. And also, I suppose part of our mission, I think, is to put pressure on the government to actually do something, to do something proactive to get people flying again. Yeah, I think that's the big problem overall, isn't it? I mean, do you think that if we had uh, temperature checks at airports, that would solve the problem? Well, it wouldn't solve the problem, but I think it would create the environment and an atmosphere in which people would feel more confident about travelling. I came through Pisa Airport a couple of uh, weekends ago, and when you walk into the airport, you're immediately you go through one of these sanitizing tunnels where you are sprayed just with a very gentle mist. It's a HOCL product, which is completely non-toxic. You can inhale it, actually. It's so harmless, and it's a very natural product. And I think that was, an, that was important, and I think that you could be, you could be doing things like that, which would, which would help. I mean, two weeks ago, at the Mail, we, we started a campaign which was um, Get Britain Flying Again. And uh, at that point, finally... We got some traction from the government to at least think about testing on arrival or, or testing two days before you come back and then a, a maybe a second test five days later, at least to reduce the quarantine time down from 14 days even to, to seven days. And there was a lot of talk about that two weeks ago. And since then, very little has, has happened. They've just sort of thrown up the white flag and, and retreated into kind of some terrible quagmire of, of inactivity. And so we need as a newspaper, and, and my role, I think, is to, to, try, to, to t- try to get the government, try to get pressure to bear to, to get this industry going again, because time is running out. Every, every week we hear of more companies that are, are going out of business and, and everything else. The airlines are, are, are ready and want to, want to fly. There's will on part of Heathrow Airport, Gatwick and everything else. Maybe it's just inertia on the government's part, or maybe it's not knowing what to do. But it's a, it's a very sorry state of affairs at the moment. There's no getting away from that. Because I think the travel industry must be one of the worst hit industries. Yes, I think, I, I think it is. I mean, obviously, come sort of, what was it, July, really, July onwards in the UK, that um, things have gone pretty well. I mean, um, in, the, in, the, in summer and even September and, and normally cottages and, and self-catering places kind of drops off at this time of year. But actually, many of them are saying that they're, they're very full for half term and full right up until November because people still want to go away. So things have picked up in the UK, but obviously overseas and you only have to go to an airport to see that it's 
shops. I mean, even I was I was astonished. I, I hadn't been to an airport for four months at least. Gat, I hadn't actually even appreciated that Gatwick South as a terminal is closed completely. Uh, Gatwick North is the only one that's open. And the only outlet that was open for business, there was a WH Smith that was open. I think there was a Pret and that was about it. And so there must be people that are being furloughed, but eventually are going to have to, to lose their jobs unless some dramatic turnaround happens. Well, it's the quarantine, isn't it, that's the killer, really, to the whole business. Because if you decide now that you're going on holiday, be it late summer sun or looking towards skiing, if you've then got to quarantine for two weeks when you get back, there aren't many people who can do that. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, there are some older people, when I was in Italy, that I noticed that on the plane, at EasyJet, that a lot of people who are retired and who wanted to go away for a, a late summer break, as you say, and then come home and are able to self-isolate for 14 days. But most people aren't. And, and it just seems ridiculous that we've stuck to this sort of 14-day rule and, and we've allowed some more and more countries to go onto that so-called red list, almost like we've been a spectator to events rather than actually shaping events. And, and that's what I find so dispiriting. Yeah, I agree. Um, what's it like flying at the moment? Because we haven't flown for ages. <laughs> well, it was absurd, really, and 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 it was farcical in that they had very few security desks, whatever you call them, open. So we were all sort of funneled into into one to have your hand luggage checked, etc. And so while lining up for that, people would literally they would just right bang next to each other and there was no question of social distancing at all and it had to be like that because we were crammed into a very sort of small space it was either that or, or going back out through the through the departure gate so that was ridiculous and then when you line up for the plane you there then you're you're meant to sort of maintain a bit of distance but you haven't been doing that and then once of course you get on the plane then you're absolutely bang next to each other again so it's it, it just so many inconsistencies and then on the plane, obviously, you wear your mask. And one thing, one positive, I think, we've got to try to think of the positive. But one positive is that when you, at the moment, when you land, uh, you know how normally everybody jumps up and grabs their stuff, and, and then you're sort of standing there waiting before you can disembark. Well, the new rule is that you, you, nobody's allowed to leave their seats. And then in a very orderly fashion, you stand up from the front, and then it goes all the way you know, back. And at that moment, you collect your bag and walk off. And that actually was very civilized. And so I'm hoping that's something positive that will emerge from it. And in fact, it, it kind of speeds up the process because people aren't, you know, fighting to get back. If they've got if their luggage is sort of halfway back in the plane, they can just go back and get it and then walk out. So that was a positive. But, and then you're not able to get up to go to the loo only if there's nobody queuing for the loo. And then no fresh food. My breakfast comprised some Pringles chips and a disgusting kind of box. It was called a, a Turkish box of delights. It had some sort of revolting hummus and tzatziki, and some more more crackers. So that was that was my that was my start to this nice little break in Tuscany. Well, it's an advantage, as you say, people not rushing to get off. I mean, they just bang into each other and someone once dropped a suitcase on my head as they were getting off. So really? Those... Yeah, no, well, that doesn't happen. When you arrive in Italy, um, and this is sort of classic sort of Italy and why we love Italy in many ways, there's a, a big sign saying that everybody entering the country will have their, have their temperature taken. And I thought that was quite reassuring. 
of course, once you get into a carousel to collect your suitcase, there was absolutely no sign of anybody being tested whatsoever. So, <laughs> so very, very, very Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of when um, I lived in, in Naples for about three months when I was much, much younger, and uh, which I absolutely adored. And um, I always remember, I was kind of astonished by the way they drive in, in Naples. And, and finally, somebody Italian explained to me how the the traffic lights there are, are, are purely symbolic. The, the red, orange, it, it, it just, it's just a sort of color scheme, really. It, it means nothing, actually. You just go whenever you want to go. So if we can't travel, we have to holiday at home. And nobody knows more about holidaying in Britain than you do because you've been running a column called An Inspector Calls, which is a hotel and food column. And you've been running that for how many years now? Uh, I think it's about 12 years now, actually. It's... Um... It's, a, it's extraordinary. The thing about the Inspector Calls column, which I think we're quite proud of at the Mail, is that it's one of the few, perhaps even only, columns where we, we pay our way and there's no sort of freebie involved whatsoever. I book it under a, often under a, a, a different name. I invite, I, once I, I, I booked it under, the, under a woman's name, Antonia Robbins or something. And when I arrived, she was very surprised. I had to explain that I'd actually just transitioned from Antonia to... to <laughs> anyway, so the Inspector wasn't able to call anywhere um, for about three months. And then finally, when hotels start to, to, to open, so I've been back doing the rounds. And actually, I've been very impressed with the way, uh, the way hotels, I don't know, have you stayed in a hotel at all since the end of lockdown? Uh, no. no um, well, it's, it's very well organized. And you, know, it's, you have the QR system with your phone to, to read the menus. And, and if there are menus, they're very much disposable menus. And, and there's no sort of buffet. And, and everybody's very respectful of, of each other. And, and they're, they're, they're doing their, their absolute best. But they've got a lot of ground to, to make up. And I think it's important. I mean, there were people, as you know, who, who did manage to save money during lockdown because uh, there was nothing to spend it on. And some hotels like the Pig Group, for example, is a, is, a, is a good example, I think, that all of their hotels are, are kind of fully booked right up into, into November. So there are people who want to go out and spend a bit of money and, and stay in a hotel. And what about apartments? I mean, we've just been to Cornwall. Where Cornwall, again, is fully booked. Yeah, where, whereabouts were you? We were just outside Newquay. Oh, lovely. So between Newquay and, and sort of Constantine Bay, that sort of area. The other direction. Around, around Water, Watergate Bay. The, the other thing. side of Newquay to that, just the other side. Okay, yeah, lovely. Yeah, well, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're doing very well. And, and half term, as I say, in Cornwall, you're very lucky to find anywhere now. Uh, and I think people feel that they were locked up for so long, sort of now or never. The weather's obviously changing a bit, unfortunately. But I think it's going to be, you know, going to be a good, rest of the year in a way for, for, for the UK. But of course, then along comes the big spanner in the works when you're told that you can only have six people. And so the rule of six means that you're not going to be able to have sort of big gatherings. We were going to do a piece about where after all this, you can go and you can take 20 of your family or, you know, multi-generational and anything else. But obviously we had to shelve that because you're only allowed to be, to be six. And that includes ch- small children. So this really makes it like very difficult indeed. Yeah. So going back to the mail, how did you become a travel editor? When did you start doing what you uh, do? Well, I think that when you get to when you get as, as old as I am, that you're you're lucky to hang your hat anywhere, really. My background was 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 news, really, and I think same as as Peter's, and and I was a news reporter and a news editor, and somehow the way I approach travel and travel journalism and travel writing is um, 
I kind of try to try to take the view that if I go somewhere, I'm going there as a as a reporter. I'm trying to go there to find out what makes that place tick. What is the what are the what are the things that people there are, are thinking about? What are they engaged by? And trying and then and talking to people and getting and getting quotes and 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 really sort of engaging with real life in these places rather than just sort of saying that we had some calamari washed down by some indifferent white wine. And and so I, I that's how I approach it and how I try to hope that other people that we use approach it. And then if you do, if you do that, then actually because everybody thinks that sort of travel journalism is, is a doddle, you just sort of go along and and you have a nice time and and tell people about it but actually as you both know it's 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 a very hard thing to do well and in the end what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to encourage people to go somewhere and try to open people's eyes a bit i think the more that we can we can learn about the world and the easier it is to to learn about ourselves so how do you relax when you're not working i pour myself a very large negroni and uh and then i pour another very large negroni on a on a friday night friday is our very sort of busy day it's all quite sort of pressured and uh, the, the ads sort of change and 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 so by the time I get home um, I am in the mood for 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 relaxation I don't know about you but at the beginning of beginning of lockdown I I I always thought I was rather sort of television snob I never kind of really watched television but I did find myself watching an ordinary amount of of television and and that habit has sort of lingered a bit and so I actually do now say to to my wife i say you know what are we going to watch tonight which is an extraordinary thing so for me it's a bit of that and then um and then i suppose as i get older i used to run a lot and uh but now i suppose it's uh, it's walking i think i've become a bit of a walker bore i want to go back to negroni for a second because yeah for the benefit of our american listeners what exactly is a negroni um, well, Negroni is the uh, is the greatest cocktail in the world. Um, that's what it is. If you mean what it actually comprises, then um, it's very simple. It's uh, it's it's the holy trinity. It's it's equal amounts of of gin, and the gin, to my mind, has to be a London dry gin. None of this sort of botanical stuff. None of this sort of flowery nonsense that doesn't taste gin at all. It's got to be a proper London dry gin, and then uh, equal measures of that Campari. And then a vermouth, and the vermouth should be a proper vermouth made in Torino, uh, rather than that awful sort of Cinzano red stuff that um, is passed off as a vermouth. I am a Negroni snob. I enjoy being a Negroni snob. And uh, Peter and, and Felice, you'll be interested that one of the greatest experts of the Negroni is a, a girl. She's only about thirty, and she runs a bar in Cormayeur in in Italy, and. If you're ever in Cormayeur, I will make sure that I give you the address of her little bar and she will make you the perfect Negroni. Don't worry. I've been drinking Negronis in that bar in Cormayeur <laughs> for 30 years. I was actually meant to be writing a book about, about Negroni and, and I wanted to get Campari to kind of put up some money and sponsor it. And Campari is a very, nobody knows what's in, a camp, in Campari. Uh, it's a kind of one of those great sort of secrets. Anyway, so they, they didn't play ball. So I drink Campari, but I don't write about it. I think it was the girl's grandmother who I used to drink with, actually, probably. <laughs> no, surely not. 
So how do you see, where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you think you'll do next? Will you be doing the same as you're doing uh, now? Well, I, I, I hope to be doing the same thing. I mean, on a very personal level, I'm hoping that I shall be um, not living in London uh, in, in five years' time uh, because I'm finding London a, a little bit oppressive, even though during lockdown it is actually quite pleasant. But I think that once you get the sort of newspaper bug quite difficult to get it out of your system so i hope i will be continuing in this in this job if i if i am i'll be very lucky <laughs> if i am i'll be i'll be i'll be the great survivor i think but that's what i hope to do and and i hope to still be to still be writing i think that um as you both i'm sure appreciate journalism is a is a wonderful privilege and it's a, a great opportunity to to be in the grandstand of sort of world events and everything else, but you don't necessarily make a lot of money from it. And therefore you've got to keep working, <laughs> I think, all your life. <laughs> and writing books too. You've done that down the line too, written Yeah, books. well, I've done a couple and I'd like to try to, to, to write some fiction at some point, but everybody says that and then the Negronis get in the way and, uh, and, and, you know, and one never actually gets around to it. But that would be a, a good goal, I think. And you're a skier, of course, aren't you? I love skiing, and I and I hope to do that for as long as I long as I can breathe. And I find that as I get older, I love skiing even more. And it's not so much for the skiing; it's just for more being outside in in the cold. I used to be a bit of a fair weather skier, and and you know only really sort of go out when the sun was shining. But now, actually, I just whatever it is, I absolutely adore it. And uh, and I shall continue and hope very much that I'll have a the privilege and opportunity to ski with both you and Felice. Uh, sometime in the near future. We look forward to it. <laughs> and um, everyone asks us this, so they must ask you, do you have a favourite place? In the uh, world? Yes. I always, um, I have been asked that question before, it's, it is true. And I normally actually say that it's the last place I've been, because normally that's the place which is kind of uppermost in one's mind and, and where it still sort of resonates and it's bubbling away. But given that I haven't actually been anywhere particular apart from Tuscany, which I which I love. I think, in all honesty, um, I would probably say India, um, and that there's something about India that is just so immeasurably enthralling and so huge, and and you f you you just feel every time you're there that you've only just tipped a little tiny bit of the iceberg, and there's so much more to discover. and And I would I would just love in the next sort of ten years or so to explore India more and get to understand. It's such a complex country. And of course, with our connections to it and, and, and history, it makes it sort of all the more interesting. Is there any particular part of India that you like? I like Kerala, that whole area. And, and actually, I suppose like a lot of people, I first, when I first went to India, I kind of went to Goa, which is sort of India light. But where I would really like to go is Calcutta, because people say that it's just, you know, a sort of breathtaking experience. And so that would be very high on my, on my list. Any big mistakes or dramatic things that have happened to you while you've been traveling? When I went to um, Mallorca, and I was actually at the time, I was, I was courting my wife, my second wife, I hasten to add. So this isn't so long ago. And we got to our hotel. Everything was going very well. And I think that she quite liked me. And, and I didn't know her very well. And then, um, so then we looked at her bag and, and decided to open her bag. And on opening her bag, um, we discovered that the, there were some rather strange uh, sort of religious texts, including the Quran and, and, uh, and everything, and transpired that she had actually 
taken somebody else's bag from the carousel and her bag was obviously some somewhere else and but then when we when we went back to the we took the the case back to the airport we actually realized that she'd done a good thing because this person was actually on the run from the police and so this is a way of identifying him so that was quite an odd experience and and it gave my wife the justification to say that it didn't really matter in fact it was a good thing that i took somebody else's luggage from the carousel because we've actually helped society at large did she get her bag back she got her bag back. Yeah, her bag. He didn't. He didn't take her bag. Her bag was still sitting there, but we had we had his bag. <laughs> so, do you think being a journalist and what you've done with a fairly remarkable life has it changed you, shaped your, you in some way that's different? I was thinking about this. One of my children asked this the other day because um, when I went on my so-called gap year, I did actually, and I still got them. I, I kind of wrote rather these sort of extensive sort of pseudo kind of diaries interspersed with a bit of poetry and sort of my own philosophical sort of anyway and um, it was all sort of nonsense in a way but it's actually quite interesting that I wanted to write things down and I've always felt that it's only by actually assimilating information to an extent to which you can actually write it down that you are, that you understand it and so I think I have through kind of being a reporter or or, or writing something I've it, it's given me an opportunity to learn about things that I never normally would have would would have learnt about it. And um, today, for example, I've had to write about this new exhibition at the National Gallery, and I really knew nothing about this artist and everything else, but, but you have an opportunity because you've got to produce something that other people can read and understand, and then you know, that gives you a certain kind of knowledge. You think you're a great expert for sort of all of five minutes, but that, I think, is a, is, is a way that it changes you and, and hopefully makes you possibly even a, more of an interesting person, but uh, we'll let others judge that. Mark Palmer, thank you very much for appearing on our travel podcast and we wish you the very best of luck with your future travels when they happen. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please do visit our website, actionpackedtravel.com or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peterandfelice at gmail.com. That's peterandfelice at gmail.com.